I've started this term just by doing, revisiting some foundations that we're trying to build our church upon. And um, we took a couple of weeks. Remember, I started the first week back, started with Psalm 67, which is this amazing prayer, crying out to God that He would bless His people. And remember, I said to you, it's not a selfish prayer. It's a prayer for God's blessing so that through us who know Christ, we can see Him bless all the nations of the world. That's the heart of the prayer where the psalmist cries out and says, may God bless you. And I, I, I said to you, it's based on the prayer of Aaron. May God bless you. May God turn His face towards you. May God show you peace, uh, be gracious to you and show you peace. And so it's, that's the sense quoting what happened with Moses as he met before God face to face. And it's that sense of the glory of God going with us so we can be a blessing to everyone. The second week I shared on um, giving and generosity in our lives, including financial generosity, so too that we can see God use us to be a blessing to other people. And I encourage you, uh, if you weren't here, please catch up online or, or watch on YouTube. Um, and I trust those messages will encourage you. So today I, I want to speak another, about another foundation, and it's simply this. is um, I'd like to speak to you about the authority of God's Word in your life. The authority of God's Word in your life. And I'd like to encourage you in terms of your own reading, your own devotions, that you really this year would make a, it a primary thing to read for yourself God's Word. All right? Um, I've, I've um, been re-watching a program called Wolf Hall. Do you know Wolf Hall? It's about Cromwell. And uh, it's about part of the story is obviously when, when Tyndale produced the Bible in English. And for the first time in this country, people had the Bible in English and they could read exactly what it said. And the, the Catholic Church had for many hundreds of years been telling them that it included paying for forgiveness of sin and veneration of saints and all these things. And there's this amazing thing that happens in the nation when people can actually read the Word of God for themselves and see what it says and how it can change your life and how it's power to you by the power of the Spirit. And I want to encourage you this year that you take hold of that for yourself and make the Word of God powerful for you. But to do that, you must believe that it's God's Word to you, which has ultimate authority in your life, all right? And so I want to speak to you about God's Word this morning, and um, trust that as I do that, it would be assure you and convince you that it is God's Word to you. People often ask questions like this, where do we get the Bible? Why should I trust the Bible? How is the Bible not different to every other holy book that's been written? How can I know the Bible is accurate? Does the Bible not contradict itself? These are common questions that you might have heard people ask. And ultimately, we need to answer those questions for ourselves because we need to know that we know in our knower that the, the, the Word of God is true, it's fully trustworthy, and that it has authority in our lives. For ourselves, we need to know that. And so it is ultimately an issue of authority. Uh, who has the final authority in our lives? And it's really important for us as Christians to carefully consider it so that we can have God's Word fully convict us in various areas in our lives. Now, it's really really a challenge in the in 21st century because we, we've, we're all part of a cynical, skeptical culture. 
which has developed from the Enlightenment. You might have heard that word before. And particularly here in the UK since the, in the, since the 1950s, there's been a growing skepticism in our country about the authority of God's word. And there are various reasons for that. But it, it is um, largely due to the suspicion of authority. And after the Second World War, after you've been through something like that and... Um, you kind of start to question a whole lot of things. And part of what was questioned was governments, institutions, and ultimately also the authority of the church. And so some of that certainly has been, has, that, that attitude is justified. There are many things that we really do need to have a good look at in terms of our culture. But unfortunately, that skeptical attitude has also infiltrated the church as I said, and ultimately it undermines the authority of God's Word to speak into people's lives. But I'm sure that all of you would say you want to walk by the Spirit, that you want to hear the voice of Jesus, that you want to be obedient if you are a person of faith. And so if the Bible is not the ultimate authority in your life, something else will be, all right? If, you're not, if, the, if the Bible is not the ultimate authority in your life, then something else will be. And I found this to be true, that if, that, if, the, if the Bible is not that authority, often it's the loudest voice in the culture that becomes the authority in your life. So whoever is shouting the loudest about whatever issue, and how many of you would um, get, uh, acknowledge there are lots of issues around in our culture right now? Lots of voices shouting very loudly about what we should believe and how we should behave over and over again. And so we must, as Christians, be rooted in the Scripture. We must ultimately be convinced for ourselves that God's Word is the ultimate authority in us. And if we're not, we are ultimately being shaped by other things that are not God's best for us. And so it is possible that we can be Christians that are, are being shaped more by the pervading culture around us and by various voices in the culture than we are being shaped by the Word of God through the person of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. And so ultimately this is about courage, that we have to find courage in our own hearts to hold on to what has been passed down to us. Paul says, I was faithful to pass down the full gospel I received to you. And I'm encouraging you to pass on that gospel faithfully to the generations that come after us, after you. And so ultimately, it is an issue of us being faithful with the gospel and passing that on completely uh, and faithfully to those that come after us. So the bedrock for doing that, the foundation, is of course a love for God's Word. And to be rooted personally in the conviction that His Word is completely trustworthy and therefore has ultimate authority to speak into my life and to speak into your life. And so, how do we begin to ask, answer these questions then about what the Bible is and the authority that it has? So, the first thing I want to say this morning, and I was aware that last week I preached far too long, so my promise is I will be done in half an hour today, all right? Hold me to my promise. Here we go. The first thing I would like to say is that we must gently hold the line as Christians and insist as believers that the Bible is received from God. Now, in fact, this is the case that the Bible makes for, for itself. Um, uh, Apostle Paul in, in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says this, which you probably know well. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God, 
And it's useful for teaching, re rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Who's the servant of God? Every one of us. So Paul is saying, all of us, to be, to be thoroughly equipped to do every good work, we need to allow the Word of God to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us when necessary. So ultimately, we conform to the image of Christ, and we become more and more like Jesus. Yes? And that happens through the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing life to us through His Word. And so this word inspired literally does mean breathed out. So God breathes out His Word, which inspires human beings, and they write down faithfully what He is speaking to them. So Peter describes that process in, in 2 Peter 1 verse 20, and it says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that very beautifully describes the process of what it means to the Word of God to be breathed out. It's God speaking, inspiring human beings by the power of His Spirit to faithfully collaborate with Him and write down what He gives them perfectly. That's what it means to be, for the Scripture to be breathed out. So that means all things in the Scripture are wholly true, both in the Old Testament, in the, in the Gospels, the Scriptures of Jesus and the Apostles, and in the New Testament and the writing of the Apostles. And so as far as those original writings have been faithfully copied and translated and passed down for 2,000 years, Scripture is inerrant. It is without error in its copies. And I'm going to qualify and explain some of these things as we go forward now. So in other words... For those that believe by faith, the Scripture functions as God's authority to speak into my life as I believe by faith. It has that authority. It has that power because it is in inerrant. So we use a number of words to describe that, and I don't want to get too technical. I want to try and be as simple as possible this morning. When Christians speak about the breathed-out Word of God, they mean three things. They mean it is inspired by God. They mean it is Iner inerrant, it's without error, and they mean that it's infallible. And I'll look at these three words and try and unpack them um, for you this morning and hopefully get a fuller understanding. So, inspired, we mean by that when we say the Scripture is inspired by God, we mean ultimately that God is the author of what is written. He, he is the inspirer of His Word. And although human beings have recorded His Word and written it down. It's God Himself who's behind what they said. And so we have really have this, this dual authorship. We have God plus human beings cooperating with Him by the power of the Spirit. And it's not that God just inspired the big ideas of the Bible, but He's behind every single word. That's what, that's what we believe as Christians. So to be cl absolutely clear, we don't believe as Christians that God... Um, so moved upon people that they became human beings, uh, became robots, and they just kind of remotely wrote down what God gave them. We, we, we don't believe that they were mindlessly in some kind of trance, and they just, like, you know, transcribed this kind of, out of the spiritual kind of thing, they just transcribed what they, 
what they saw. Now, there's a collaboration, what they heard rather. There's a collaboration between God the author, human beings, and the power of the Holy Spirit that comes together perfectly and, and writes down exactly what God intends. Now, this is very important because this is what it means to, to understand that God breathes out His Word using human agents. If you contrast that to some other great faiths of the world, for example, the Quran, according to uh, conventional Islamic belief, the Quran was inspired or revealed to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel who came to him and gave him vision, supernaturally vision that he wrote down in Mecca and Medina beginning around 610 and ending with his de- uh, after, around his death, 632. And so he, he claims that he was inspired by Gabriel and what Ga- Gabriel gave him, he wrote down. Okay? Not, not, not the Holy Spirit, an angel. Secondly, if you think of the Book of Mormon, another kind of well-known sort of... Uh, Faith, the doctrine of Mormonism began with this guy called Joseph Smith, who was a farm boy in the 1820s in uh, western New York. And uh, there were, in America, there were a number of great awakenings. There were these revivals that happened in America. And the second great awakening, um, this guy, Joseph Smith, was praying and, and praying about what denomination he should join. And so he said he received a vision from God in 1820, which he called his first vision. And he said that God the Father and, God and Jesus the Son appeared to him in this vision and instructed him to join none of the existing denominations because they were all wrong. Every one of them was wrong. And so he claims that he had further angelic visitations and it was eventually told by these angels that God would use him to reestablish his true church. That every other church in history had been wrong, but the true church was going to be established through Joseph Smith. And you know that church now is called the Latter-day Saints. Yeah? And he further claims that um, what he, he received was translated from golden plates from an ancient Egyptian language, which he then translated with the Urim and the Thurim. You know what those are? They're Old Testament uh, things that the prophets used. And, and special stones that he received. And he, he claims that an angel, it's amazing how many people have these visits from angels that tell them to do amazing things, weird things. This angel showed him the exact location of these plates in 1823, which he claims were buried in a nearby hill. What about Hinduism? Well, the Bhagavad Gita, is a, a poem, which is a scan- Sanskrit poem of, of ancient India, and it's um, one of the in- most influential texts for Hinduism. But it actually claims just to be a poem. It's a, f- it's a dialogue between a prince called uh, um, Ajurana and Krishna, who is um, a manifestation of Vishnu, who is one of the deities. And it's a, and it's a, a poem that's recorded, and uh, it was li- li- lightly composed in the first and the second century. So why I'm saying all of that is simply to say this, is that, and you can inve- investigate for yourself Buddhist uh, writings and where those came from, this, the, the, the Bible has extraordinarily different claims. It doesn't claim to have been shown to human beings by angels or special visions or manifestations or books that were hidden in a hill, golden plates, 
No, it simply says that the, earth, the author of all truth, the father of all truth, who cannot be a liar, spoke to human beings over thousands of years, many of them, and they faithfully, by the power of the Spirit, recorded what he had for them and wrote it down for his word, he who cannot lie, to us so that we, we can read the revealed truth of God about the person of his son in plain language, all of us. That's the authority that the, the Bible claims for itself. And so when we say the Bible is inerrant, we are saying that God used these human authors to pen exactly what he wanted without error. And so I'm saying to you that the Bible claims that all of these human beings, all of these men with their personalities, different personalities with their different languages, their different writing styles, their accumulated knowledge, their life experiences, their illustrations, their metaphors, their poetry, all of those things, he combined all of those things so that he could communicate to us his message as he wanted without error. That's what I'm saying, the Bible claims. And so Benjamin Warfield is a well-known theologian. He says this, The trustworthiness of the Scripture lies at the foundation of trust in the whole Christian system of doctrine, and therefore it's fundamental to the Christian to bring hope and life. It is a big deal what you believe about the Scripture. It is a very big deal because it's the basis of all that we believe. And so if we abandon and say, oh, it's not completely accurate in all things, and, and we kind of start to make our judgments on what is true and what is not, and we leave the uh, Christian, we ultimately undermine Christian doctrine for ourselves. And so without an, an inerrant scripture, there's no assurance of God's salvation for us. It's not fully truthful. It's not totally trustworthy. And all of these things are thrown into question. And ultimately, for people like me that preach the word, if we don't really believe, if we don't have a conviction that it's absolutely true, then how can I get up on Sunday after Sunday and say to you, this is what God's word says, if I'm not sure myself? Very, very shaky foundation to preach. Much is at, 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 at stake. So we hold as Christians that God's word is inerrant, without error. Secondly, we hold that it is infallible. What does that mean? It means that God's word is incapable of making mistakes. It is perfect and it's a complete revelation of himself to us. And this is what uh, Isaiah 55, 11 says. Uh, I love the scripture because it kind of encapsulates what I'm trying to say about the word of God, accomplishing exactly what he sends it to do. My word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and it will prosper in what I send it to do. Amen. So God sends his word and it is always perfect and always capable of doing exactly what he intends it to do in your life and my life. It's incredibly powerful. That's why we need to base our lives on what he says to us in his word. And so what we believe about God and what we believe about the Bible are intertwined and you, can't, you cannot separate them. They are one and the same thing. And I'm, I hope that becomes clearer as I go forward now. And if God is the author of scripture, it's impossible for us to divorce his character, who he is, from the character of the things that he says through his word. What I'm saying to you this morning is the scripture is the spoken word of God written down. 
And therefore, it is, if it is the spoke, spoken word of God written down, God has to be faithful in his character in terms of what he says, or else he's a hypocrite, or else he's a liar. Isn't that true? If I say one thing and my character reveals something else to you, there is a tension in my life that is not right. And in the same way, it's the Word of God is absolutely true because it perfectly reflects the truth of who God is, and it's His spoken Word written down, which is absolutely consistent with who He is. Yes? And so that's why it's true that God and His Word are distinct, but it is His speech to us. I'm trying to make that clear. It's His words, His speech. That's why we say it's the Word of God. It is His speech written down through the inspiration of His Holy Spirit through faithful men that have written it down over centuries and centuries and centuries. And it follows then that God is always truthful and it follows then that His words to us will always be truthful. So you can trust His Word. He is the God of truth. He is the God who is truth. He is incapable of speaking untruth and so when he speaks to us it comes fully as truth into our lives and we we i'm saying to you this morning that the word the scripture reflects the truthfulness of the author who sent it and breathed it out for you and i uh, hebrews six eighteen says god cannot lie and the bible is god's word he cannot lie and therefore his word is incapable of error. Now, if you have skeptical friends like I do, your skeptical friends might uh, challenge you and say, well, this seems to be like circular reasoning to me. And what, what they mean by that is, is this. You say you believe in God because the Bible tells you to, and you believe in the Bible because God tells you to. That's circular reasoning. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that uh, in, a, in a short while. But to be, to be fair, they are in, in a way, they are correct. But circular reasoning is not a problem for Christians. It's a problem for everybody. And I will show you that shortly. What about the, the, the thing that other skeptics say is uh, if it's written by humans, surely humans are, are going to make mistakes. They are fallible. So they're going to make mistakes. Doesn't that mean that the Bible also has mistakes in it? And I answer it by, by saying this. Christians believe it is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, John 15, 26, that carries along every human author, that inspires every human author, 2 Peter 1.21, which I read to you already. So what God inspires in human beings must be truthful, must be perfect, because He ultimately is perfect and, and, and true, and He cannot allow human error to be mixed in, into it. Otherwise, it would not be true. So he so inspired people that they faithfully wrote things down without error. And so I want to put it to you that's not beyond, if God is omnipotent and all-powerful, it's not, be, not beyond him to do that. It's perfectly, perfectly uh, possible if we as Christians believe that the Son of God can leave behind all glory and conform himself to a babe and come and live a perfect life without sin, in order to communicate through his life what it means to be a child of God and to be saved through his word, if we believe that, <laughs> then it's perfectly obvious and capable that God can inspire human beings to write some things down without error. 
Amen. And so it's really important when we're speaking about inerrancy that we're also talking about the original text because I've heard this so many times. Uh, you know, the, the translations are not accurate and there's mistakes in the Bible. That simply is not true. Simply is not true. Uh, the, there might be tiny little infinitely small meanings in words that are some people argue about and say, well, does it mean that? But the, the whole breadth of Scripture and its message is not changed in any way. And as, as archaeologists disco discover more and more ancient parchments, if you, if you know um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the things about the Dead Sea Scrolls that was, they found in the 50s was the oldest copy of Isaiah that they have found. And obviously parchments disintegrate over time. So it's very difficult to find really, really ancient, ancient. This was the oldest, oldest uh, parchment they found that predated Jesus by thousands of years. And when they looked at the translation and the modern translations, exactly the same without error. People have been incredibly faithful to write down and translate without error. So you can trust it. And as we discover more, it only confirms the Bible is accurate in terms of history as well. More and more we're finding that. The stories in the Bible are historical and true. And so is the translation. So the Bible is not full of errors. And don't, don't let anyone um, fool you and say that it is. It is the product of inspiration. It's an inerrant text of Scripture. And as far as it has been faithfully copied, translated, and passed down, it, it remains inerrant in all its copies. And so people have also said this to me, what about the contradictions? And often, I, I, I want to say respectfully, often people have not read the Bible for themselves. And they pick up things that other people have said that are supposed to be contradictions. And there are not really any major contradictions in Scripture. Let me, let me put it to you like this. In the, the Gospels, most scholars will say that Mark is the foundation of the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is, is another case, different case. But if you read Mark faithfully, you will see all of Mark is contained in Luke and all of Mark is contained in Matthew. It seems to be the foundation document for the, the, those three Gospels. And then we have slight changes that people record that Matthew says some things that Luke doesn't do, etc., etc. But they, in terms of what they say, they are so small. So one gospel says there were angels, an angel after the resurrection. Other gospel says there were two angels. One gospel records Peter cut off the ear of a soldier. The other gospels don't do that. Does it mean that they are, they are not saying the same thing? Of course it doesn't. The message is the same. The truth is the same. It's like if you saw an accident and you saw it from different angles, the police would not believe you if every single one of you said exactly the same thing. That's called collusion. If you have collusion in the court of law, it's proof that it's not true. If all the witnesses say exactly the same thing in every detail, the judge says, nah, this, is, this can't possibly be true. They are lying. They've colluded. It's exactly the same. And of course, Matthew, Mark, and Luke might have seen some things slightly differently, but the truth of what they record is, is not changed in one little bit. So there are not lots of contradictions in Scripture. And I challenge you, if you think that, go and read the Scripture for yourself. Don't just listen to what everyone else says. Read it for yourself and make up your own mind. 
And Paul says, if you disagree with me about any of these things, God will show you. And that's my challenge to you as well. If you disagree with me, cool. Go and read it and we'll talk. Okay? Because I want you <laughs> to be absolutely convinced for yourself that when God speaks into your life through his word, he is speaking to you. And he wants you to change. That's not to be debated. It's to be, yes, God, I take your word as revelation to me, as authority in my life, and I will change according to your word because I want to be more and more like Jesus. And then my last point this morning, and I've got 10 minutes left, when I'm talking about the infallibility of God's word, I would point you to Jesus, and I'd point you to Jesus' view of Scripture. When we look at Jesus and how he and his disciples treat the Old Testament, it is always with absolute reverence, Never with suspicion towards its authenticity. Jesus never did that. Even his opponents, his most vehement opponents, the scribes and the Pharisees, did the same thing. The fact they were fighting about what the Old Testament said is proof they believed what the Old Testament said. That's why they were fighting about it. And what did the scribes and Pharisees say? Jesus, you are claiming that you are Messiah. They knew what the Scripture said. They were, it had ultimate authority in their lives, and for Jesus, the same. So they might have disagreed on whether Jesus was who he said he, who he was, but never once do Jesus or the scribes and the Pharisees ever disagree on whether the text is trustworthy and authoritative and the Word of God. They all believe that. And so Jesus brings this unique credibility to the issue of what the scripture claims to be infallible because he is the son of God. And so naturally his view of the scripture, uh, I want to say <laughs> he, has, he has an ultimate view of the scripture as God's son. And surely our view of the scripture should be the same of Je as, as Jesus, as God's son. And so um, this for me comes together in the most beautiful way and shines the brightest when Jesus expresses his belief that the covenant promises that God makes in the scripture that we sang about this morning have all come true in his own life. Isn't that amazing? He claims all the things that are written have come true in his own life, and he is the fullness of the manifestation of all God's covenant promises in the flesh. And that's why he says, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Thank you, John. Why can he say that? Because he's saying, I am the fullness of all of God's covenant promises to you. If you look at me, you've seen God. I am completely trustworthy because God is completely trustworthy. All that he promised in the Old Testament, you see in me. Therefore, you can trust God completely in terms of what he says. Because he's absolutely true and he's never a liar. And so the gospel is ultimately the ultimate proof that not one word of God has failed, that it is completed in Jesus. And the truthfulness of God's word comes with life-giving power into everyone who believes by faith. So God is faithful, and all his promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. What greater affirmation could you hope for or want in the inerrancy of Scripture. And then some final, final thoughts on why ultimately the Scripture has authority in our lives. I said to you that often Christians are accused of, about having a circular argument. 
you know, you believe this, but the Bible tells you to believe this, therefore it's like a circular argument. Well, I put it to you this morning that every worldview, every worldview, whether you're a secularist, whether you're a humanist, whether you're an atheist, every way of seeing the world begins with a commitment that can't be proven outside of that worldview. What I mean? Well, I always joke, uh, if you, any of you have seen um, Nacho Libra, anyone have seen of you? seen that movie? There's this um, amazing character. He's a, he's a wrestler, a Mexican wrestler, and he, he always says, I only believe in science. I don't believe in faith. I only believe in science. Well, there are lots of people that have that worldview. And I only believe in rational thinking. I only believe in what can be scientifically proven. That's called rationalism. So there are many rationalists in the world. And they believe that the chief way of understanding human beings and the chief authority for understanding human beings and understanding the world is rational thinking. So if you ask a rationalist to explain their position, what would they do? They would give you a rational answer. They would say, based on these facts and according to these scientific principles, I believe this. They're starting from their worldview. They argue from their worldview, just as, just as Christians are, are, are accused of doing. And so, in other words, everyone, whatever their worldview, presupposes their worldview to be true in order to argue from, for that worldview. And so, this is what the Christian is committed to. A Christian worldview begins with this, that God exists, that He is there. That is the out of love created all that we see. The universe, the galaxies, the trillions of galaxies, God created those out of love. And out of love, He put at the center of all the universes, our world. And out of love, He made human beings that He so loved, He put them on the earth. Isn't that amazing to think that God loves you before you even were? That's what the scripture says, isn't it? Before anything was, God loved you. And then the scripture says, and because he saw sin on the world, he so loved the world that he sent his son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so this is the commitment of the Christian faith. It is a commitment that God existed, that he loved, and that he revealed himself to us. And it's also the, 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 the Christian faith is a coherent story. It's not written by one revelation of one man by an angel or by a golden plates in a hillside revealed to one man. It is written by 40 authors, 40, over 1,500 years in three languages. Not one person's revelation. It's the gift of God through people, human beings, 40 human beings, inspired by the Holy Spirit, breathed out through their lives, written down faithfully without error, and it makes sense of the world. It makes sense of where we came from, where we're going. It makes sense of what it means to be a human being, to live and love and exist with other people. That's the Bible's claim. That's where it starts from. It's inspired. It's breathed out. God is its ultimate author. It's inerrant. God used human beings to write down exactly what he wanted without error. It's infallible. It's incapable and will always, it's incapable of error and will always accomplish exactly what God intends when he sends it. And that is perfectly shown and demonstrated through the life and the person of Jesus Christ who says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. 
the fullness of who God is is demonstrated completely in my life. You can trust me because I am a full reflection of my Father in heaven who is completely trustworthy and has revealed his word to you and written it down. And so Romans 3 verse 4 says this, um, Paul, God must be true even if everyone else is a liar. For it is written that you justify in your words and triumph when you judge. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. And any of you this morning that have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, by putting your faith in Jesus, know that the, the, the Word of God has incredible power to transform you personally. And so my encouragement, as I started, my encouragement to you this morning is, will you this year love God's Word? Read God's Word for yourself. I mean, so much commentary about stuff. Man, just, you know, I went and read philosophy at, 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 in, in Oxford. You know what I found out when I read philosophy, when I read what Plato actually said? It's much simpler than what scholars say. <laughs> when you read the original and you read what he said, it's actually, yeah, no, that makes sense. And yet philosophers make it like this big deal. And it's like so complicated that only few people can understand it. Actually, no, it's not. You read the scripture for yourself. That's what Tyndall made possible for us in this country. That you didn't have to know Latin. That you could read the scripture for yourself and God can speak to you in your life day by day. And I want to encourage you to read it, not just listen to it. It's beautiful that people read it well. And I've said to you before, Mr. Poirot, what's his name again? David Suchet reads it beautifully. You can go and get, get it on, on, uh, on an app and listen to him reading it. It's absolutely beautiful. But you need to read it for yourself. You must read it for yourself and it becomes life to you. It becomes health to you. It becomes, that's what it says, your word is health to my bones. It becomes honey to your lips that is precious to you. That you make it part of the authority of your life. And don't just rely on, I love technology, but you know what the problem with technology is? Now I'm ranting at the end. You know what the problem with technology is? It's bite-sized little things. One little verse that you pops up on your, and I use daily devotionals, but it's one verse. Never gives you the context, never gives you the chapter, never encourages you to read the whole book. Oh, there's one little bite-sized thing for you today. And take the bite-sized thing and take it away with you. It can be very encouraging and often is. But my friends, I'm trying to say, read the whole thing. Read the whole chapter. Read the whole book. Fight it yourself. Struggle yourself. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, you don't have to defend God's word. It's a lion. You just need to let it loose and it'll do what God intends. Read it for yourself. Let it loose in your life that it becomes like a lion that transforms you and challenges you. And says, yes, there's some things in your life you need to change. Come on. Oh, no, that's so, it's so, God is so unkind. He's not loving. No, Paul says, sometimes you need to be rebuked. You're being stupid. Let the Word of God rebuke you. Let the Word of God build you up. Let the Word of God challenge your racism. Challenge your love of money. Challenge your selfishness. Come on. Or else, what is it there to do? Oh, it just make me feel nice and good about myself. No, you are deter God is saying, you will become like my son in every way. And my word will transform you if you will give it power and authority to speak. Come on. We want St. Albans to be different, don't we? 
I want it to be kind. I don't want to dishonor my boys, but you know, they've had their own, their own struggles in terms of faith and coming to themselves, uh, what they believe. You know what changed their view ultimately when they were at university? The world promises that it's kind and loving. And if you just consider everybody's opinions, it'll all be all right. They went into the world, and what did they discover? The world is not kind, not gracious, not forgiving, doesn't give people a second chance ever. You disagree? Cancelled, my friend. Done. Forever. And whatever is brought up on social media 10 years later, I'm going to remind you of what you said 10 years ago, and I'll judge you according to that. You are not free. You are condemned and judged. And they came back and said, Dad, you've never understood that grace is such a beautiful thing. It is. Just because you're familiar with it, don't let it ever rob the power of what it is in your life. God has been kind and gracious to you and revealed himself through his word in the person of Jesus into your life. And it's transformed you. Pass that on to others faithfully so that they too can know the freedom that there is in Jesus. May God bless you. May God keep you. May God turn his face toward you, make his face shine upon you, and give you peace. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to thank you for who you are. Thank you for the fullness of your life that completely and perfectly demonstrates who God is. We honor you for your word to us, faithfully written down over thousands of years by ordinary people, inspired by your Holy Spirit, faithful to breathe it out perfectly, inerrantly, that we can live it by it and take it as your word to us with ultimate authority. And Lord, my prayers for my friends, every single person here this morning, that we would grow in your love our love for your word, that we would grow in our commitment to reading it for ourselves, to wrestling with it, to allowing it to transform us and challenge us where we need to be changed. Because ultimately, Lord, we want to be like Jesus. And this only comes by the power of your spirit. Spirit, we cry as we sang this morning that you would lead us to where there are no borders. You would raise us up above the storms that we see, that we can see with your eyes. And Lord, all of us would be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we read your word and allow it to speak into us. Help us this year, I pray. That every one of us would grant our love for you and our love for each other. Everyone says, Amen.